And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, we always take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's word under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history at the cross. Because that penalty is paid, we don't have to try to impress God with how sorry we are for our sins or bargain with Him that we'll never commit that sin again if we'll just forgive me this one more time or anything else like that. We just have to admit or acknowledge our sins to Him and He instantly forgives us, wipes the slate clean, forgives and forgets the sin, separates separates the sin from us as far as the East is from the West, And we are instantly filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can resume our moment-by-moment walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, as we will see this morning, who is the one who helps us to understand God's Word, who teaches us, and who recalls the doctrine to our minds so that we can apply it at the right time. So it is absolutely crucial for us to be in right relationship to the Holy Spirit at all times. So we begin with just a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have to come before your throne of grace this morning, that you are our God who has provided a way, one way to your throne room, and that is through the redemptive sacrifice, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he who knew no sin was made sin for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things in your word this morning as we study them, that they would be clear to us, that we would be challenged by these things, and that we might come to a greater understanding and appreciation of who you are and how you have worked throughout history in bringing us into a relationship with you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 26. John chapter 15, and this morning we will spend all of our time on these last two verses of John 15. Now, 
This verse is one of the most significant verses in all of the New Testament on the Holy Spirit. In this verse, we get not only get a glimpse into two of the most important roles of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, but we also get an understanding or a glimpse of an understanding of the eternal relationship among the members of the Trinity itself. Not only that, but this is connected specifically to the disciples who are soon to be apostles. It is connected to their ministry in laying the foundation of doctrine for the church age. Now, if that's not enough to deal with in one verse, in one hour on Sunday morning, let's break it down even more. When we look at this verse, we see that it is uh, one of the most crucial verses and it lies at the core of one of the most serious and devastating divisions that has ever occurred in church history. So we have theology proper, pneumatology, spiritual life, ecclesiology, and heresy, all in one verse. Now, there are some things in this verse. Just We had some visitors this morning, just to give you a little warning. There are some things in this verse that are very profound and have generated some tremendous thought throughout the centuries. Some of you are not going to be able to handle some of that, but that's okay. You know, just like when you sit down at a meal, if you can't eat the steak, you just eat the mashed potatoes and the gravy and maybe a few of the vegetables, whatever it might be. There's always something for everybody. And we will begin this time looking at this verse, and then we will have an introduction into... And it's simply that, an introduction into the doctrines of the Holy Spirit. I want to take the time to stop here at this verse and do that, because by the next chapter we are going to get a further and fuller revelation from our Lord about the coming ministry of God the Holy Spirit. These chapters, from chapter 13 through chapter 16, we see the parting words, the parting instructions of the Messiah, to the disciples, just the night before he goes to the cross, he is giving them his marching orders for the coming church age. Now, they aren't too sure of what's going on. They aren't sure why he's leaving. We've seen their confusion. And in the midst of their confusion, he has incrementally introduced, since the end of chapter 13, new revelation concerning the Holy Spirit. And that there is going, that as he leaves, he is going to be replaced by the Holy Spirit called the Comforter in some translations, the Helper in other translations, the Parakletos in the Greek. And that this is going to be foundational to their future ministry and spiritual life. What this tells us as church age believers, along with the study we've had in the last couple of years on Galatians and some other studies, is that it is this ministry of God the Holy Spirit in this church age that makes the spiritual life of every believer in the church age crucially dependent and uniquely dependent upon God the Holy Spirit. Unlike any other age in all of human history, this age places the Holy Spirit at the core of the believer's relationship with God and his spiritual growth. So we have to lay that foundation, and we'll see it in this particular verse. So if you're a visitor with us this morning, just fasten your seatbelt. 
you may be in for a bumpy ride. John 15:26. Jesus says, "When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning." Well, before we can get into any level of application, we first have to do a little exegesis to understand what exactly is being said in the original language here so that we can then extract from it, after a proper understanding, what the implications and applications are for us today. First phrase, when the helper comes. In the Greek, it begins with the temporal adverb, hotan, which indicates when it is used with an aorist tense verb, as it is in this first clause, it indicates a precondition for what takes place in the main clause. Now, this is one of the, th- one of the times when I really enjoy getting into a text of Scripture, and you have to break it down grammatically in order to understand what is being said. Now, this is the kind of thing I do when I go out in October and teach the pastors at the uh, WHW Pastors Conference is try to help them understand the significance of grammar and syntax for understanding Scripture. When you look at this passage just grammatically, it starts off with a temporal phrase, when the helper comes. Then you get a relative clause, whom I will send to you from the Father, Then you have an appositional clause. If you notice in your English Bible, the phrase, that is, is in italics. Whenever you see that in your English Bible, that tells you that it is inserted by the the translators for ease of reading in English, but it's not there in the English, I mean in the Greek, and I don't think it needs to be there in the English either. The phrase, the spirit of truth, is simply an appositional phrase to describe the helper. So it should be, whom I will send to you from the Father, relative clause. Then you have an appositional clause to further define it. And then you have a second relative clause who proceeds from the Father. All of those are what is called grammatically, take you back to high school English, subordinate clauses. In order to grasp any thought in the Scriptures, you always need to find your main verb. Find your main verb and you'll find your main clause. And the main verb is a future tense verb at the end of the verse, he will bear witness of me. Now that's your your main clause and that's the main thought is that the helper, whoever that is, and we'll see the definition of that in a minute, the helper will bear witness of Jesus Christ. So he's emphasizing that particular role of the helper. But when we look at the first clause, we understand it grammatically, we see that when a Temporal adverb is used with an aorist tense verb that sets up, or pre, that means that that action must precede the action of the main clause. So the helper must come before the witnessing takes place. Now, of course, what this is really referring to is when the uh, Holy Spirit comes, the first advent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So when is an allusion to the fact that it will come soon. The verb here is the aorist active subjunctive 
of the verb erkamai, which means to come or to arrive. The aorist tense, see, every part of the original language has significance. Some has more significance than others. And I like to break the verbs down in terms of their parts of speech in order to understand the significance here. It is an aorist tense. We don't have an aorist tense in the English. That is a past tense. It usually summarizes the action into one event. And this, of course, refers to the first advent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. At this particular time, that is not clear when that will be. They just know that it's being promised. It's an active form of the verb. Now, I get a call every now and then from somebody who says, well, I got into this particular verse, and the verb is a passive. And then I'll, and I don't understand, for example, deomai, which is a word for asking or for prayer, is a passive. Now, how can I translate a verse, a passive verb, when it says, when I pray? And I say, well, in Greek, you have a class of verbs called deponent verbs. The active form of that word dropped out. It's no longer used. So there's only one form left, a passive or a middle passive form, and that substitutes for an active. So even though it has the form of a passive verb, it must be translated as an active verb. And in, as an active verb, the subject performs the action. So we see that it is the helper, the helper who comes. He performs the action of coming. And it is a subjunctive mood. Now, this is the mood of potentiality or uncertainty. And the reason it's expressed in the subjunctive is because the Lord has not revealed exactly when the Holy Spirit is to come. They are uncertain. It is an indefinite time in the future. He is simply saying that at some point in time in the future, this will take place. Now, the word that is translated helper is the word parakletos. It has the definite article, that's the ha, which is a definite article, and here it is used to refer to a particular a particular individual. Now, the term parakletos is a technical title for the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's translated comforter, sometimes it's translated uh, helper, but the term itself refers to someone who helps. Someone, it, it comes from, uh, if you break it down etymologically, it comes, para is a preposition meaning alongside of or next to, and we'll see that uh, used in this particular verse as well. Kletos from the verb kaleo meaning to call, or, and it means to call alongside, and it came to mean one who would come to the aid of someone else, an assistant, a helper. And by virtue of the concept of helping or assisting, it came to be used for consoling, encouraging, or mediating on behalf of someone else. So it is variously translated helper, encourager, mediator. And um, the way I would translate it is when the helper comes. I like that concept of helping because that emphasizes the fact that it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who helps us to lead the spiritual life. Our responsibility is to exercise our volition to learn the Word of God and to apply the Word of God. But it is God, the Holy Spirit, who assists us in producing fruit and maturity. We don't do that. As we have seen time and again, 
It is the role of God to produce the growth and produce the maturity. Just as we saw earlier in this chapter in the vine analogy, if you are growing a plant, you can provide the right environment. You feed the plant with the right kind of nutrients in the soil. You water the plant. But God has built into the metabolic structure of that plant an inner dynamic that is outside of our control and that is immediately engaged when the right nutrients are there and, and the plant grows and then it produces fruit. Same thing happens by analogy in the spiritual life. What we can do is we can learn the Word of God and get the right spiritual nourishment and we can uh, walk in dependence on God, confess our sins and abide in fellowship with Christ. And when we provide that correct dynamic, that correct environment, then it is the Holy Spirit that is the inner dynamic that God has given us who produces the growth. That is called the filling of the Spirit. And it is what eventually produces the fruit of the Spirit. So parakletos is a technical title to describe this particular function of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the church-age believer. He's the one who assists us and helps us to live the spiritual life. That's why in Galatians 5.16 it says, Walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. It is the spiritual life is a uniquely supernatural life that must be lived in dependence on God the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that it puts the believer in a purely passive position. That led to a problem in church history known as as the Keswick theology, and it's also called uh, let go and let God. That was the basic uh, sort of thematic phrase they used. Just uh, become passive, just relax, and God's automatically going to override your volition and produce uh, life in your life. That's not the way it works. God never overrides our volition. We have to exercise our volition in the arenas we are to exercise our volition and then let the Holy Spirit take it from there. But He is not going to make the decisions for us. When we have uh, rigorous temptations that hit us directly at our areas where we are the weakest and most likely to succumb, we still have to make those hard decisions and say no. The Holy Spirit's not going to make it any easier. The Holy Spirit's not going to override that volition. But the Holy Spirit is going to bring to our mind the pertinent doctrine, pertinent promises, pertinent information we need to use to apply to that particular situation. Now, in this, in this verse, I want to focus on the main clause first. And the main clause is that when the helper comes, when the assistant comes, when the encourager comes, he will bear witness of me. Now, here we have in this sentence, you don't see it in the English, but in the Greek, you have a very unusual Construction. It's, it's fascinating because whenever you see something step out of its norm in Scripture, it's there for a reason. The first word in this sentence is the third person singular pronoun in English, he. That is a personal pronoun. We have other personal pronouns such as I, we, you, they, he, or she. It is impersonal in English. In English, if you're talking about an inanimate object, usually, there are some exceptions. Sometimes you talk about a ship as a herb, but that's for other reasons. Uh, 
but you talk about an inanimate object as an it. Well, in Greek, like in most inflected languages, a noun has case, number, and gender. Some nouns are feminine, some nouns are masculine, some nouns are neuter. It doesn't have anything to do with their any kind of sexual overtones. It is called correctly gender. It used to be before the women's liberation movement came along and started changing our language that gender only referred to uh, grammatical designations. An old Greek professor of mine used to say, people have sex, words have gender. Gender should not be applied to people. Anyway, you have a noun like pneuma. In this particular case, you have the phrase, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth who provides from the Father. Now, when you have this preposition, or this pronoun, he, a pronoun always refers to its most immediate or its closest antecedent. Okay? You have to discover what the closest word is that this refers to. It's not going to go back a sentence, three clauses, five clauses, if there is a close antecedent. Now, if you look at this verse, the nearest antecedent to he is spirit of truth. Spirit is the head noun. Truth is a object of a prepositional phrase. See, you never knew you'd come to church and learn so much about grammar. But this is important. Now, when you get to this word he, it refers back to spirit. Now, in the Greek, the word spirit is pneuma. Pneuma is a neuter noun. Yet, in the Greek, when you have a pronoun at this last phrase, the pronoun is from the word echinos, which is a masculine singular pronoun. Now, remember the rule of grammar in Greek is that a pronoun must agree with the noun in case, number, and gender. So if you have a head noun, your main concrete noun or your antecedent is is in a neuter gender, then the pronoun must agree in gender. It must be neuter. However, here, as in several other passages, uh, John 16, 13 through 14, and Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 as well, the pronoun shifts from being neuter to masculine. You have a neuter noun, pneuma, referred to by a masculine pronoun, echinos. Now, why is that? Because the Holy Spirit is not an it. This emphasizes the doctrine of the personality of God the Holy Spirit, that he is an individual person within the Godhead and not an it, not some uh, formless, ghosty vapors, not some um, uh, formless entity that just sort of represents God, but that the Holy Spirit is an individual person. And this is very important, especially in... Uh, 20th century theology because 19th century liberal theology sought to reject the Trinity and they argued against the personality of God the Holy Spirit. And so in this verse you have this unusual Greek construction which emphasizes for us the personality of God the Holy Spirit. He refers to the Holy Spirit as a person. 
Then it says that He will bear witness of me. And it is a future active indicative of the verb martyreo. Now, martyreo refers to witnessing. and We get the English word martyr from it because we've taken it to the next degree. Someone who testified or witnessed uh, to, to Christ lost their life. So that's what uh, martyr came to mean in English. But it has its roots in this Greek word martyreo, which means simply to witness, to give testimony of who Jesus is. Now, this is the main thought. When the helper comes, I'll come back in a minute to the uh, relative clauses and the appositional clause, but first I want to catch the main flow of thought in these two verses. When the helper arrives, that's really the best way to translate that first clause. When the helper arrives, he will bear witness of me. So the role of God the Holy Spirit is not to bring worship to himself, not to put himself at the center of attention, but to put Christ at the center of attention. Now that's important because in today's climate, especially in Pentecostal charismatic churches and in some other groups, everybody wants to put the emphasis on God the Holy Spirit as an object of worship and focus. And yet the role of God the Holy Spirit is to put the focus on Jesus Christ. So we have to keep the focus in the right place. So his focus is to bear witness, not of himself, but of Jesus Christ. And this is further developed in the next verse. The result of this coming of God the Holy Spirit as the helper to these disciples. Now remember the context. We saw in verses uh, 18 down through 24 that Jesus is warning them that because they have aligned themselves with him, and by application he's warned us, that when we align ourselves with Jesus Christ, the world system is going to be radically opposed to us and antagonistic to us. The world will hate us. Jesus says, if the world hated me, it will hate you. So he is warning them that as they fulfill their responsibilities as disciples and apostles, and by way of application as we fulfill our responsibilities in witnessing for the Lord as ambassadors for Christ, we are going to meet opposition, we are going to meet hostility, and we may even meet uh, physical death as a result of our witness. But God has not left us alone. He has given us the Holy Spirit who is to strengthen us in the midst of that mission, specifically as it relates to witnessing. You see, it is the responsibility of every single believer as a priest to witness and to explain the gospel to those who are unsaved. Now, what happens is a lot of people are very unsure of themselves in witnessing um, situations. We've all gone through that. We don't, we're a little nervous. We're a little scared. We're, we might say, well, we might be fear rejection to some degree that if I tell this person about Christ and they reject Christ, then they'll reject me and we don't know how to handle that. And there's always this level of timidity and fear and anxiety that goes along and we've all faced that at one time or another in our, in our spiritual life. But the Lord has given us the Holy Spirit specifically here. He has other ministries, but specifically here the point is to assist us in witnessing. You see, one of the things that often keeps us from witnessing or keeps folks from witnessing is they're afraid, well, well, what if they raise an objection that I can't answer? What if they ask a question that I, I really can't handle? What if, 
What if they, they, um, they, I don't present it right? What if I, I'm not sure, what if I just get tongue-tied and, and don't get it out right? Uh, well, I'll let somebody else do it. And see, what the Scripture says is that the real powerful influence in a witnessing scenario is not you, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is, comes along and helps us in the witnessing situation. Helping us, not in the sense that He's going to give us the answer all of a sudden when somebody raises the question about the problem of evil and in the world and how can a good and loving God allow sin and evil to exist in the world, that you're going to have the, the most wonderful uh, erudite answer that ever came along. No, it means that God the Holy Spirit, as you and I present the gospel to, to an unbeliever, God the Holy Spirit is the one who is going to make it clear to that person. See, our responsibility is not to get them saved. Our responsibility is not to answer all their objections. Our responsibility is not to be able to answer all of their questions. Our responsibility is simply to make the issue clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That because of sin, every single human being is born in a state of condemnation and under an eternal penalty of of death in the lake of fire. But that Jesus Christ went to the cross to die as our substitute and He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, so that there is no sin, there's no evil that you can commit in life that was not paid for by Christ on the cross. So the issue is not how bad you've been. The issue is not your failures. The issue is the grace of God. Are you willing to accept God's free gift of eternal life by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? You see, that's all we have to communicate. Everything else is up to the Holy Spirit. He is the one who's going to make the issue clear to the person we're witnessing to. He's the one who is going to convict them of their need for salvation. And He is the one who ultimately makes their faith effective for salvation. And that's what this is referring to, and this is the application for us, is that it is the Holy Spirit who bears witness of me. And Jesus says to the disciples, and you will bear witness also. It is like a cause and effect because the Holy Spirit is going to uh, bear witness of me and this is His role then as a result. You too will bear witness and you see this relationship that takes place that our witness is made effective by virtue of walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus concludes by saying, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, this specifically refers to the disciples because they have seen Jesus, they have walked with Jesus, they have observed all of the miracles, they have observed everything that He has done, all of His words and works, and as a result, they can go forth and communicate the gospel. This is reiterated in 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. John must, must have learned his lesson from this particular verse. He begins his epistle by saying, What was from the beginning, what we have heard. Now, when he says, What was from the beginning, he uses this Greek phrase, Apo arches. Now, the only reason I want to make a note of this is that I recently heard, in fact, I heard it from 
someone who should know better, who's the president of Dallas Seminary, make the statement that, that in relation to John 1, 1, which says, in the, beginning, uh, in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning, it doesn't have a definite article, lacks that definite article, just has like this, it's a preposition in plus our case, that it should be translated in the beginning, which was not a beginning. Now, that just shows that he doesn't know Greek very well and hasn't done his homework. Because in the Greek language, every time you have a definite word, a word with a definite article like, like our case, when you put a preposition with it, the preposition replaces the definite article. The word is still definite. It would not make any sense for Jesus to say to these apostles that um, you will bear witness of me also because you have been with me from a beginning which was not a beginning. You see, if that were what this individual did with that particular phrase was, was legitimate, then you would have to translate this that way also because it lacks the definite article. What it refers to is the beginning of Christ's ministry. And we saw that in John 1 as he came out of the wilderness and came back to the river Jordan where John the baptizer was. Then he called to himself his disciples. He began with, with John and Philip and Andrew, and we saw that in our study of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. So John reiterates this in 1 John 1, 1. What was from the beginning, that was from the beginning of Christ's ministry. What we have heard, we referring to all of the apostles, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled. It was physical. The incarnation was not some appearance of God. It was a real, physical incarnation. Concerning the word of life, a technical title for the Lord Jesus Christ, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you. And there's our word, bear witness, martyreo. We have seen, the life was manifested, we have seen and bear witness, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Same phraseology Jesus used just a few verses ago in John 15. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be made full. So there is a relationship here to having that uh, incomprehensible joy, peace, stability, contentment that the Lord has, fellowship with Him, abiding in Christ, and walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. All of these things are now tied together for us. Now, there's a couple of other things we learn about the Spirit here. Whom I will send, Jesus says. Let's go back to verse 26. When the Helper comes, the Helper, when the Parakletos comes, when the Parakletos arrives, whom I will send to you. Now, the verb here is pimpo. It's a future active indicative. The future tense indicates that it hasn't happened yet and is yet future. This tells us that the Holy Spirit in His ministry in the church age was not known before Jesus sent Him. There is no ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament like He has today. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon 
only a few, and for the specific purpose of giving them skills and abilities in leading the nation Israel. There was Othniel, or excuse me, there was uh, uh, the uh, Aholiab and Bezalel, who were the craftsmen who built the tabernacle. There were various judges and kings. There were priests and prophets who were had the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't for their spiritual life. It was in relation to their leadership of the nation. It is only in the church age that we have the Holy Spirit given for the spiritual life of the believer in order to aid the believer. So when Jesus speaks this to his disciples, it is a yet future event. He says, the Holy Spirit whom I will send. The other thing that this shows us, and this is where we start getting into a little deeper uh, understanding of the relationships of the Trinity, is this shows that God the Holy Spirit is under the authority of God the Son. It is God the Son who sends the Holy Spirit. It is not God the Father here who sends the Holy Spirit. So we see an authority relationship within the Trinity. We'll put this together for you in our conclusion before we wrap up. Jesus is the one who sends the Father. Now, the word here, pimpo, is slightly different from the next word that's used, which is found in the next phrase, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father. Now, this is a crucial word and has been the subject of of thousands and thousands of pages of writing and great, great ecclesiastical divisions. Who proceeds? The verb there is ek peruamai. Ek peruamai, and peruamai means to go forth, and ek out from. It is the term uh, ek peruamai plus the preposition para. He goes forth from the Father. Now, this is interesting. There's about three prepositions in Greek. I told you we were going to get into some heavy stuff. I apologize to the visitors. We don't always get quite this technical. But as I said at the introduction, this is a crucial verse for understanding the role of the Holy Spirit. And it also plays a crucial role in many problems in church history. Uh, From the side of the Father is the verb, it is a preposition, excuse me, para, which indicates coming from the side of something. Ek indicates coming from the source of something. And then there's a couple of other prepositions that, may, for example, that that may indicate uh, coming from the uh, from a secondary or intermediate source. But here he says he proceeds from the Father. Para indicates equality. Therefore, if it, if he had said he proceeds from the source of the Father, that might indicate origination. That there, you might be able to infer from that there was a time when the Holy Spirit didn't exist. So he uses the, the preposition para to indicate the essential equality of God the Holy Spirit with the Father, and he comes from the Father, and he, and he proceeds from the Father. Now, this term proceed is a technical term which describes the eternal relationship of God the Holy Spirit to God the Father. It is called the procession of the Holy Spirit. Just as when talking about Jesus Christ, we talk about the eternal generation of the Son. 
He, there there uh, never was a time when he did not exist. But the technical term is that Jesus was always generated. That describes the relationship of the second person of the Trinity to the Father. And the term that has been used historically to describe the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son is this word, uh, peruomai, that he is proceeding. Now, I want to review a few things for you. I've gone over this before, but it's been a long time. And this introduces the whole concept of, of how this relates to our understanding of the Trinity, to our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. So we will just stop here for a minute and begin our study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit, introduction to pneumatology. Now, if you learn anything here, you'll learn a little new vocabulary. Pneumatology is the correct term for the study of the doctrines for the Holy Spirit. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Eschatology, the doctrine of last things. Theology proper is that which relates to God in terms of his essence and trinity. So we begin with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, introduction to pneumatology. Now, I always try to break things down like this into a few points to help you grasp their significance. The Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to say about one particular subject in any particular verse. And what's important is to take what is said in one passage and then relate that to the whole of the Scriptures so that we can have an accurate understanding of the doctrine. So point number one on our introduction to pneumatology, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Point number two, let's define the word Trinity. In fact, the word Trinity is an English derivation from the Latin word Trinitas. Trinitas is not found anywhere in the Scripture. Nowhere will you find the term Trinity in the Bible. It was coined by a 3rd century A.D. theologian by the name of Tertullian. And he used this to describe the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Up to that point, there was no clear understanding among the church of the doctrine of the Trinity. And we all understand that the fact that God is three and one at the same time is a difficult thing to grasp. In the early years of the church, they didn't think precisely about this doctrine. They believed that God the Father was God, and the Holy Spirit was God, and the Son was God. But they didn't really try to grapple with the fact that, well, we really don't believe in three gods. There was sort of a naive um, understanding of the Trinity, but it wasn't expressed precisely. And it wasn't until with the growth of Christianity that, it, that some of the doctrines of Christianity began, began to be attacked by um, secular philosophers, and they said, okay, you say you believe in one God, but you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That sounds like three gods to me. Aren't you really polytheistic? So they had to begin to think, okay, what do we really mean when we talk about God? What is the relationship then of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? How can we say we have one God when they're really three? And so Tertullian coined the term Trinitas to describe this relationship of persons within the one God. You have, uh, so this is our definition. It is a technical theological word that designates God as one in essence, but three in person, but three co-equal, co-infinite, 
and co-eternal persons. That means in their essential identity, they are equal. One is not superior to the other in terms of his essence. They all share the same attributes. They are all equally sovereign, equally righteous, equally just, equally loved, equally eternal, equally omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, equally immutable, and equally veracity or truth. So you have three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, mentioned in 2 Corinthians 3.14 and treated equally there. So this is our definition of the Trinity. Now, in church history, there were various ways, as they tried to figure out how to express this, they had, they had different ways of doing it. And I want to go through this quickly with you, otherwise you won't understand where we're going in a few minutes with this doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The first attempt was called modalistic monarchianism. Now, that's a mouthful, and I don't expect everybody to remember all this, but you'll catch the thrust. Modalistic monarchianism looked at God as being one essence and one person, but he just expressed himself three different ways. In the Old Testament, he expressed himself as a father. During the Incarnation, he expressed himself as the Son. And then during the Church Age, he would express himself as the Holy Spirit. But it was one person and one essence. That was just, and he just expressed himself in different modes. That's why it was called modalism. And you just have one, one God, so he was the monarch, and hence called mon- modalistic monarchianism, and it was also called patripassionism, because then it would be the father who was suffering, patri-father, passion suffering, it would be the father suffering on the cross. So that was deemed heretical, because it didn't do justice to the fact that the Scripture teaches that the three members of the Trinity were three distinct persons. So the next solution to the problem was called dynamic monarchianism. Dynamic monarchianism. And the way this worked is that in eternity past, God then, in, you have one God in the past, sort of a unique monotheism, or Unitarian monotheism, God would create man, and then later when Christ was born, He infused into Christ the spirit of deity. Into the position of Godhood, this usually happened at the baptism with John, John the Baptist, and then he goes on throughout all eternity. But there's a beginning point to his deity. It's not, not eternal. So that only God is eternal and the Spirit was treated as just some impersonal force. That's why it's important for us to understand those, prep, those pronouns that emphasize that the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, after that was deemed heretical, you had a, a guy come out of northern, northern Africa by the name of Arius. And Arius was a popular songwriter, and he had a heretical position that Christ didn't begin uh, at, the, at the baptism, but that Christ began at some time in eternity past, but he had a beginning. There was a time when Christ was not. So he wrote little songs and choruses, and all throughout the Roman Empire they were singing Arius' popular hymns. There was a time when Christ was not, and so it infected the whole Roman Empire and created a tremendous division among the church. And remember, at that time, you didn't have denominations. You just had Christians. 
So everybody's fighting over this theological issue, and Constantine becomes emperor, and, and he converts the, or he claims now that the Roman Empire is Christian because he's been converted, and now all the Christians are fighting each other. So he said, we've got to solve the problem. He didn't understand it, but he said, we've got to solve the problem. We can't have everybody fighting all the time. So we're going to have a church council. We're going to get all the great church leaders here. We're going to meet at this little town outside of Constantinople called Nicaea, and we're going to solve this problem. Now, they had about oh, 150 or 200 bishops show up at, at, at Nicaea. Most of them, and you'll notice this, whenever you get into church controversy, 95% of the people in the controversy don't have a clue as to what's going on. 2.5% understand the issues and they're on one side. 2.5% understand the other. The other 95% are swayed by personality and emotion and never have a clue. And that's the way it was at Nicaea. But at Nicaea, the bishop of, um, down in Egypt by the name of Athanasius, the bishop of, um, of Alexandria, fought strong and hard for the fact that Jesus Christ has to be true humanity and he has to be eternal, fully God, all possessing all of the attributes of God, otherwise he wouldn't be qualified to go to the cross. And that position was the position adopted at Nicaea. For political reasons, it was rejected and fought over for another 75 years before they finally came back in 381 A.D. at the Council of Constantinople and reaffirmed it. And that is considered the Orthodox, not in terms of Eastern Orthodox, but that's the biblical view of Christ, that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity. So Arianism was eventually and finally rejected so that the final... Nicene definition of the Trinity was that they were co-equal, co-eternal, and co-substantial. That means they had the same essence, the same substance. If you go too far in one direction, emphasizing their unity and their equality without and losing their distinctiveness between the persons, you end up in modalism. If you emphasize their unity and their distinctiveness too much, you end up with some kind of subordination. This is the problem we're getting to. I know this is burning some brain cells. Just hang with me. I don't ever get to teach this, and I love it. Remember, I I did my doctoral work in church history. Okay, this leads to subordinationism. If you emphasize the unity, they're all God and diversity, but they they have different roles, You've, you've lost their equality. So they're not equal anymore. So you just have a... A, a subordinationism where you have Father, then the Son, then the Holy Spirit. But if you do that, you end up almost like you do in Islam with God the Father being equivalent to Allah and you have this strong authority without any emphasis on the individual members in terms of equality. Now, I'm going somewhere with this and, and, and you just have to hang with me. You just have to hang with me. Now, this is how it was expressed in the Nicene Creed. We believe... In one God, the Father, all-governing, creator of all things, visible and invisible. Some of you have come out of some church backgrounds, used to recite this a lot. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, as only begotten. That's that technical term of eternal generation. Doesn't mean He's born, He is begotten. They made that distinction. He is begotten of the Father as only begotten, that is the uniquely the uniquely born one, that is from the essence of the Father. He is of the same essence. It is the Greek word homoousios, 
And the battle was over. They said it was the battle of the diphthongs because the only difference between the two words they fought over was an I. Homoousios or homoousios, of similar or of like. See, theologians have to battle over these technical words because the implications are phenomenal. And I'm going to show you this this morning, why theology matters. Okay, so hang with me. From the, the Son is from the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence, homoousios, as the Father, through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and the earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, becoming, becoming human. He suffered, and the third day rose and ascended into the heavens, and he will come to judge both the living and the dead. Notice how all the emphasis in this creed is on the person and work of Jesus Christ. What does it say about the Holy Spirit? And we believe in the Holy Spirit. They don't define the relationship of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. This doesn't come about until later. What happens in 381 when they finally work through all the theological battles of the previous 70 years or so? They write it this way. Let's just focus on the middle paragraph. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not created, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being. So they emphasize that he, Jesus Christ is full deity. Now look at what, they, what it says. Skip down to the last paragraph here. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver who proceeds... From the Father. There's our phrase. Same Greek phrase we find in John 15, 26. That God the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Now, what happens is that, that for the next two or three hundred years, most theologians in the West, what I want you to remind you of historically, is you have the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is splitting between East and West more and more as time goes by. Eastern theologians tend to be influenced by their worldly culture, which is more mystical. Western theologians deal with other problems. But in the West, they're understanding the authority of Rome more and more. There are, uh, uh, there's an expansion of the church into Spain. As, as the Spanish are beginning to deal with the, the meanings of the doc, basic doctrines of Christianity... They hold various synods at a place called Toledo. In 589, at the Synod of Toledo, they decide to define and refine this statement on the Holy Spirit. It's an important distinction. It is the fundamental difference between all of the Eastern Orthodox churches, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, all of the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Western churches, and is the doctrinal reason why they split in the 11th century. And it's over what happened at the Synod of Toledo. Now, most theologians taught this, but they decided to clarify it, and they inserted a phrase in the Creed of of Constantinople. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver who proceeds from the Father, who is worshipped and glorified to get... uh, They added the phrase, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Stating that the Holy Spirit proceeded not only from the Father, but from the Son. 
And in the Latin, and the Son, is the word filioque. From the word for son and the word for and. And so this is called the filioque clause and the filioque controversy and is the reason the East and the West split. Now you're sitting there saying, okay, this is all kind of, kind of interesting, but so what? It changes your understanding of the relationship between the members of the Trinity. The East and West will never come together because of this fundamental difference in the way they look at ultimate reality as expressed in the Godhead. When you have God the Father and God the Son, and you truly understand them as having equal essence, then it follows that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both because both are equal. However, if you have sacrificed in your thought the equality of Father and Son, then the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father and not the Son, and you begin to lose equality in the Godhead. Now let me come back to our Trinitarian diagram to bring in... I keep making this point. It is an abstract point. I I don't know five people in this country who really teach this. You'll never hear it on a Sunday morning because everybody's scared to teach it. But it's to show that doctrine makes a difference. Here's an ancient diagram of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Think of them as three individuals. Because they are unity, the whole has a significance. The whole is important. Because they are three distinct individuals, each individual is treated with equal importance. And there is a perfect balance between the parts and the whole. Now, this plays out in every single relationship in human history, but let's apply it to government. When you sacrifice equality within the Godhead, you end up with subordinationism, which, will, which creates an ideological environment. It creates an ideological environment that almost always must express itself politically in totalitarianism, in some sort of tyranny, because you don't have a basis. See, the ultimate reality in the universe is God. That's called metaphysics. If in your ultimate metaphysic you don't have a, a, a way to solve equality and unity together at the same time, you're either going to end up in anarchy, because all you do is emphasize the parts and not the whole, or you're going to end up in totalitarianism, because all you emphasize is the whole and not the parts. And if you want to know why Russia and Greece and Syria and, and those, the Orthodox countries will never, ever be able to come to any ideological understanding of democracy as it is expressed in this country, it is because at the ultimate core of their thinking, whether they're religious or not is irrelevant, this thinking shapes their worldview. And at the very core of their thinking, they don't have a God that, that has a, an equality of person. There is a, an in, inherent and a subtle subordinationism which promotes an authoritarian concept within the Godhead where you have the Father who, sends, who, who generates the Son and who sends the Spirit, but there's not a co-equality because you've broken it on this side between the Father and the Son. So that creates an environment 
of worldly thinking that relates to a totalitarian concept of government. And the same thing is true in marriage. And if you think about, in, in, in a lot of these cultures, if you look at how they relate within the home, see, what happens in pure Trinitarianism is you can give value to each individual and also you give value to the whole. Both have value. You don't sacrifice one for the other. And this plays itself out in marriage. Because in marriage you have distinct roles just as you do in the Trinity. The Son has a role. The Spirit has a role. That relates to their function. There is an authority structure. The Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. The Father is the authority. Jesus says, I can do nothing unless the Father allows it. So you have authority and you have role distinction. But at their core, they are equal. They have equal value with one another. So there is a balance between the individuals and the whole. And so what you see here is when you sacrifice, when you sacrifice equality in the Trinity, you sacrifice giving value to the individuals in society. So that the government then becomes that which has, and the whole becomes that which has meaning. The same is true in Eastern Orthodoxy in terms of the religion. It's the mystical church that has authority. And that's the term they use. It is the mystical church that has authority, not the scriptures, and you sacrifice the value of the individual believer priest because you sacrificed at the core metaphysical level of your thought any value to the individual. Now, I know everybody's going to want to listen to this tape and go over this again and again, but this shows you how theology works itself out in culture, in politics, in economics, and in history. Theology makes a difference. Some little fine-tuned point like this, and most people say, well, you know, I, I just want to know how Jesus wants me to live. You know, that's your typical Sunday morning thing. Just tell me how to live. Well, this shows you how these fine distinctions in the Scripture have been understood historically and how they have made differences in cultures and why Russia, Greece, Syria, why Orthodox countries are radically different in the way they approach Scripture and they approach politics and economics than they do in the West. So that's our quick, quick look at the doctrine historically and how it relates to the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, wrapping up or moving through our, our doctrine, point number two was the doctrine of the Trinity. Point number three is names and titles for God the Holy Spirit. Names and titles for God the Holy Spirit. He is called the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2 and in Matthew 3-16, which relates him to the essence of God. B, he is called the Spirit of the Lord in Luke 4-18. He is called the Spirit of Yahweh in Judges 3-10. In Isaiah 61-1, he is called the Spirit of the Lord God. Is called the Spirit of the Living God in 2 Corinthians 3 3, and he is called my Spirit in Genesis 6 3. He is called the Spirit of our God in 1 Corinthians 6 11. He is called the Lord the Spirit, where it is equated grammatically that the Spirit is Kurios, the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3 18. 
He is called the eternal spirit, with eternality being an attribute of deity. Therefore, he, he is equal with God in terms of eternality in Hebrews 9.14. He is called the spirit of glory in 1 Peter 4.14. Of course, only God has glory. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus in Romans 8.2. And he is called God in Ephesians 4.30. Furthermore, stop grieving the Holy Spirit, the God, literal translation from the Greek, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All of these titles emphasize the deity of the Holy Spirit, that he is fully one with God in terms of his essence. Five titles reveal the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Son. He is called the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8, 9 and 1 Peter 1, 11. It's called the Spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1, 19. He is called the Spirit of Jesus in Acts 16, 7. He is called the Spirit of His Son in Galatians 4, 6. And the Spirit of the Lord in Acts 5, 9 and Acts 8, 39. Furthermore, there are various titles that indicate his ministry. They reveal the nature of his ministry. He is called the Spirit of Glory in 1 Peter 4.14, which reveals his role in glorifying Christ and in bringing all believers into eternal glory. He is called the Spirit of Life in Romans 8.2, which reveals his role as the agent of regeneration. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He is called the Spirit of Holiness in Romans 1.4, the Holy Spirit in Matthew 1.20 and following, and the Holy One in 1 John 2.20, all of which emphasize His role in our sanctification. He is called the Spirit of Wisdom and Understanding, the Spirit of Counsel and Might, the Spirit of Knowledge and of the Fear of the Lord in Isaiah 11.2. In our passage in John 15.26, He's called the Spirit of Truth, And the spirit of faith. Faith, I understand in that passage, not that he produces faith, but in the sense that faith can refer to not only the act of believing, but what is believed. And I think all of these titles emphasize the role of the Holy Spirit in revealing the Word of God and in helping us to understand the Word of God. It is through the Holy Spirit that God revealed His Word, according to 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, and it is the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand it according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. He is called the Spirit of Grace in Hebrews 10.29 and the Spirit of Grace and Supplication in Zechariah 12.10. Furthermore, he is called the Spirit of Adoption. He is the one who brings about our adoption into the royal family of God at the instant of salvation in Romans 8.15. And furthermore, he is called the Comforter in our present passage, which indicates his role to nourish, guide, nurture, strengthen, and assure the believer in his spiritual life. Point number four. The deity of God the Holy Spirit is emphasized by the fact that he is identified with Yahweh in Acts 28.25, which, which quotes Isaiah 6, 1 through 13 you will see that in Isaiah, the one who is called Adonai and Yahweh is equated with the Holy Spirit in Acts 28.25. 
You also see the same thing in Hebrews 10, 15 through 17, and in comparison with Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, that the Holy Spirit is identified in the New Testament with Yahweh when it quotes Old Testament references. Titles of deity are used of the Holy Spirit. He's called Spirit of God, Spirit of Jesus, and the Spirit of Yahweh. The Holy Spirit is also associated with God the Father and God the Son on equal terms. In Matthew 28:19, the baptism formula, baptizing them in the name of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that equates the three as one in essence. They are associated together as members of deity. So all of this emphasizes the fact that God the Holy Spirit is fully divine. He also has personality. He also has personality. He has the attributes of personality in terms of intellect and will. 1 Corinthians 2.10, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. So that means He can reveal things. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. That's a function of intellect. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. He has intellect. Isaiah 11.2, And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All of this emphasizes knowledge. In Ephesians 1.17, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Romans 8.7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And 1 Corinthians 12.11, but one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. That just as he wills indicates that he has volition. So all of that emphasizes the Holy Spirit as a person. Then the Holy Spirit performs actions of personality. He guides believers in Romans 8.14. He commands, in Acts 8.29, he commanded Philip to go up and join the chariot. He witnesses. He is the one who bears witness of Christ, John 15.26. And he is the one who intercedes for the believer in Romans 8.26. And then he proceeds from God the Father throughout all eternity, which describes His eternal relationship in essence to the Father. Now, that is just by way of introduction to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is doing that gradually, one element at a time, as He goes through the upper room discourse, because He is preparing the disciples for the fact that there is a new spiritual life on the horizon. And it is uniquely based on God the Holy Spirit. It's not some experience. It's not done through some kind of emotionalism or speaking in tongues, but it is specifically related, as we will see, to knowledge, to learning the Word of God, to being able to understand the Word of God, and being able to accurately apply the Word of God. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity to look at these things and to be challenged by the depths of Your Word and the tremendous implications that are found there. That These are not always easy things to think about and to work through, but they are, in, in their profundity, we, we are impressed with the, the complexity of your word and, and all the depths that are there. 
Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal life, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that now would be the time for them to make that certain. All you need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture says there is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The issue is not good works. The issue is not moral reformation. The issue is not church membership, attendance, or any other human factor. The issue is simply faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied and to to meditate on them and to see how they relate to our own lives and how, how the basic presuppositions of Scripture challenge every area of our thinking and our existence. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.